You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. Today, I'm talking to Karan Liu, a food writer at the Toronto Star. I've long been a fan of his work and perspective, which is accessible but has an eye toward sustainability, has humor and deep understanding, but is authoritative in his perspective. We discussed how he got into food despite never cooking growing up, shifting definitions of authenticity, and being a writer who can convey the totality of Toronto to an international audience. Hi, Karan. Thank you so much for being here and chatting with me today. Thank you very much, Alicia. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Oh, my God, my origin story. <laughs> um, I think my origin story is quite different from a lot of your previous guests. Like, I, I feel like when you ask a food writer like what their relationship with food was early on, they'll say, like, oh, I used to gather... Uh, around the dinner table with my grandma for like Sunday night dinners. And it was, it was such an important part of the, the week. And I would be in the garden. I would watch my mom cook. And it was so important in my formative years. And mine is the complete 180. I think a lot of kids who grew up in the early 90s were, who were like raised on television and were latchkey kids, like we just completely absorbed all the junk food commercials that were blasted at us. So when I think about what I ate growing up, it was all like the golden brown deep fried junk. <laughs> so it was a lot of uh, pizza pops, which I think is the American, the American equivalent would be Hot Pockets, um, like mini microwave pizzas, Kraft mac and cheese. Sorry to be a Canadian stereotype, but <laughs> I did eat Kraft mac and cheese growing up, um, like instant ramen, like a lot of that. Um, but I lived with my grandmother as well um, in our in our house. And she was an amazing cook. She cooked a lot of really fantastic Cantonese dishes. But I didn't really appreciate it back then. Um, I think a lot of immigrant children growing up um, in Canada or, or in the U.S., like they were, they wanted to assimilate into, you know, quote unquote, American Canadian culture that so much that, they kind of n looked down or didn't appreciate the cooking of their heritage as much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I remember my grandma making like fantastic like stews and um, like all, all these like really big, like beautiful steam, steamed fish and like uh, these like fermented things and pickles and stuff like that. And I didn't appreciate it because I wanted McDonald's and burgers. Right. <laughs> so that's what I ate growing up. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, the same way when people ask me about this, it's like there is a lot of beautiful, great food that I ate, but I also all summer was responsible for me and my brother and would just boil like cheese tortellini. I would be horrified. I, st I ate meat then, but when my mom accidentally bought the meat tortellini, I would like want to die and like a lot of Elio's pizza and everything. So, and a lot of like putting a hot dog in the microwave. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, I didn't, I, I mean, at least you, you used the microwave. Like did I even use the microwave? Did I even know how to use the microwave? I'm trying to, trying to remember 
back then because I I think like uh, my my parents wanted me to focus on studying and being really right. good at academics, you know, to sorry to be a cliche, um, <laughs> a Chinese Canadian kid uh, with like Chinese parents. So like I wasn't really I wasn't encouraged to cook. I yeah like I was they're like you know studies study study like don't go into the kitchen. So I, I didn't know how to cook. I, I, I don't even think I knew how to turn on the stove um, growing up. Like I don't even think I touched the stove until I was in like my twenties. Like it <laughs> no, was I, awful. Yeah. I didn't know how to make an egg until I went to college and I like had to learn how to like scramble an egg. And I was on the phone with my mother. I was Googling how to do laundry. I didn't know how to do anything. So I'm I'm right there with you. It's it's okay to grow up not knowing how to do it. But I think it helped us in the larger part, right? Yeah. I think our experiences are quite similar or quite similar to a lot of people right. um, out in the world. Like I don't think I think there's more people like us who grew up on junk food and convenience foods and was taught to, you know, not stay in the kitchen to focus on on our on our studies and like people yeah. who grew up on like a beautiful farm and like with a garden. You know, whenever I read yeah. like a cookbook jacket and it starts off with that, I'm like, I'm out. Like I don't know how to relate to <laughs> I always come from that perspective in my work, which is just like, you know, we do have nostalgia for crap sometimes. But it is funny because the other day I posted on Instagram stories that like I love Wendy's barbecue sauce. And so like when <laughs> when barbecue sauce tastes like Wendy's, I love it. And someone was like, that's sad. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, sorry, well, I didn't you know. grow up in like the South eating like I don't know what kind of barbecue sauce they eat. I don't know. <laughs> Did Wendy's give you that spawn con deal yet or are you still doing that? <laughs> I will not take a spawn con deal from Wendy's. <laughs> I just mean I just like that the smokiness and sweetness I think are really well balanced in their barbecue sauce. I don't know. But you know, you studied journalism and I was looking at your resume and you seemingly went, you know, right into writing about food. You know, when did yeah. you decide you wanted to be a food writer and how did you make that happen? Uh so I went to journalism school and at that point food writing wasn't really talked about outside of being a restaurant critic and those jobs you know they open up when the critic retires or dies like that's pr pretty much it so i went into journalism school thinking i was going to be a general assignment reporter which is basically you know covering anything and everything that happens in the city so i graduated and then i did a few internships and i realized that general assignment so covering courts crimes you know everyday city stuff I was horrible at covering breaking news, hard news. I hated it. I hated covering courts because I was so scared that I would like accidentally cover, like write something wrong or publish something that was under a publication ban or you know, going to a crime scene. It was so nervous. It was so stressful. It took so much out of me emotionally and I, I just couldn't do it. So uh, some, I, I just apply for an internship at this magazine called Toronto Life, which I guess is the, I have to give like American equivalents, I feel like every time I talk about make Canadian references. So I think it's like, like New York Magazine would be like the, mm -hmm. the equivalent of it. And yeah. it's like a city magazine. And the week that I started, they started a food and restaurant blog, um, you know, covering, you know, what's hot, what's new, because this was the early like the, the late 2000s early 2010s when the rock star chef 
like persona, like that whole food culture started to come up, like the third wave of uh, independent restaurants, like the 30 seat chef owned restaurants uh, where like they played like rock music and rock music, I sound so, so, like such a tweet. Um, <laughs> like that, that genre of like the post 2008 recession restaurants came about. So it was a really exciting time for food. And they started that restaurant blog and like, I didn't know anything about food, but I needed clippings for my portfolio. So I just kind of wedged myself in there. And that's how I got started writing about food. Still, did, I don't think I still like turn on the stove at that point, by the way. Like <laughs> I, I might have graduated to like learning how to use a microwave. Still didn't know anything. Yeah. But, you know, when you're out in the field and you're talking to cooks and learning about cooking in restaurants, it starts to seep in. So it starts to encourage you to you know, cook and to um, try different um, ingredients and and to really just get your force yourself into the kitchen. Yeah. In what direction did you go to force yourself into the kitchen? Were there books? Were there TV shows? Were there ingredients or flavors that that inspired you to actually cook? I actually didn't watch food TV that much because I think it just reminded me of work. Like right. I think around that time, Top Chef Canada came out, and like I. I think I watched like one or two seasons when it first came out and then I just stopped because it was like, oh, I recognize that person. Oh, crap. This just reminds me of work. You're like, oh, I have to call that person back for like an interview. <laughs> so I, I was just like, no, this is eating into car on time at night. I don't like it. <laughs> and I think around that time, like food internet didn't really take off yet. Like I think mm-hmm. maybe Deb Perlman might have been around at that time, but I didn't know of her work. I think a lot of it was just being in the kitchens and seeing how chefs work and asking them about oh why is this dish like that or why do you do this and then when they explained it to me very patiently because I'm pretty sure they knew I had like I didn't know anything and they were explaining things to me three or four times so I didn't get it wrong (laughs) so I think because they reiterated cooking techniques and flavor pairings so much that it just seeped in subconsciously so when I pass you know like when I'm passing by the St. Lawrence market which is Toronto's like large farmers market. I would be like, oh yeah, like that's like that's in season. I remember like that that chef telling me about it, and like, oh right, that's how they would do it. Maybe I could just like pick up some of this stuff and take it home and try it myself. So it kind of worked very organically that way. I also didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't buy any cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> they are so expensive. It, it didn't occur to me that a library was right there. So, Well, can you tell me, I know you've had some big changes lately uh, at the Toronto Star Food section. What has been going on there? Yes. Well, thank you very much for letting me plug, <laughs> uh, plug, plug the new food section. So at the uh, Star, this is where in our... Uh, first month, we just have a new food section coming out. And it's me and my uh, good friend, Suresh, who is, who's been in food writing for like, much longer than I have, like at least 15 years. And the two of us, we love eating around the city. And we just love this, um, the city so much. There's just so much that I think people don't know about that needs to be celebrated. So the my, the higher ups at the star, the big bucket mucks were like, Hey, <laughs> you guys like writing about food. Why don't you guys, here's like, here's a new food section. What do you want to do? And we were more or less given carte blanche. And it's just so much fun. 
Um, what we love to focus on and the places that we always eat are the places in the strip malls, the plazas outside of like the Toronto downtown core um, in the suburbs in places like Scarborough, Markham, North York. I'm sure this is the first American podcast where they're like, the word North York and Richmond Hill were mentioned, <laughs> like Vaughn, Woodbridge, Etobicoke, all these little like 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 suburbs, like outside of like the 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 downtown area that, that most people know about, where all like the big expensive splashy restaurants are. Like those are the places that I love to eat at and Suresh loves to eat at, but it hasn't really been covered before in a lot of uh, food media here. Um, for reasons that, you know, we know, we know why, we know why. <laughs> so it, like, we've been given that opportunity to do that. And it's really, really exciting um, to be able to go to these places and let more people know about them so that they can go out and eat and explore the city that they think they know, but there's still so much to learn. Right. And, you know, in this job that where you're at the star, you've done so much, you know, you're editing, you're feature writing, you're writing restaurant reviews, you're, you, you were doing recipe development as well. And so, you know, how have you juggled all of that? And, and what are you looking forward to focusing on now? Yeah, it's, it's so much because <laughs> unlike the newspapers uh, in, say, like, the New York Times and San Francisco Chronicle or LA Times, where they have like a, a fairly sizable food team. In Canada, like it's it's a lot more bare bones kind of yeah. a thing. So everyone has to wear multiple hats. So I'm just really uh, happy that I get to have a more focused mandate, I, I guess, mm -hmm. which is kind of just exploring and eating out and being able to tell the stories of a lot of these cooks and uh, people who work in the restaurant industry that don't really have a voice and be able to talk about different cuisines um, and what it's like to work in the restaurant industry. Yeah, it's a lot more focused and a lot more fun because before right. it was a lot doing a lot of different things and hoping that I didn't screw up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think of you and Suresh as well as being more you know, focused on your cities than other food writers, you know, like, well, Jonathan Nunn in London, like it, he calls himself more of a city writer. I think the other person that's pointed to as more of a city writer was Jonathan Gold at the LA Times. And, and you know, like you are really conveying the entirety of a city in your work. Uh, you know, you're doing service and lifestyle for people who live there, but you're also, you know, sort of defining and expanding the idea of what Toronto is to people who read your work outside of that city. How does that city inspire your work? You were just talking about going into the suburbs and everything, you know, how do you see the food media outside of Toronto kind of like influencing your work if it does? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think that's part of the reason why I don't really do recipes anymore. Right. Because even uh, people in Toronto, when they want a food recipe from food publication, they'll hit up food and wine or like Bon Appetit, you know, places that have such a, not monopoly, but like they're like juggernauts when it comes to recipes, like New York Times cooking. So it didn't really feel like it was necessary for me to go into that because right. like uh, I don't think people come to be for recipes but what I think I can do and Suresh can do is to just really put 
the greater Toronto area, which encompasses North York, Scarborough, all those surrounding suburbs, into an international spotlight because there's just so much good stuff there. And I think there's very few people uh, doing it right now um, Mm -hmm. on such being or doing it on or being able to do it on a large platform like Mm -hmm. the Toronto star. That's one, I think that's one area where we think that we can really excel at and shine. So we're like, okay, let's just do that. And Mm -hmm. you don't, and I, I always say, I think like Toronto always builds itself as a very multicultural city and it's, it's, it's been repeated so much that we kind of just were like, yeah, 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 of course, whatever. It's like, it's, a, it's like a given, but it's not until you go, you're traveling and you're outside Toronto. You're like, Oh wow. Toronto really is a very multicultural city. I think our last census report, like more than half of the people uh, who live in Toronto, I think like English is like their second language or something mm. like that. And we have so like, it is, wild how many different types of cuisines there are in the city and how many different types of new cuisines that form when the second the, the first and second generation kids like take the, the the cuisines of their heritage and combine it with like the, the cuisines that you know they ate, ate at the friend's house or the different restaurants that they go to like there's always these new mashups that come up and and eventually become like a very uniquely Toronto tradition. So it's, there's always stuff happening and it's, it's always inspiring me and uh, in my food writing. You recently wrote a piece on the concept of authenticity and how Chinese chefs in Toronto are challenging it by doing what you just explained, being authentic to their own lives and experience rather than kind of a historical or nostalgic ideal. So, you know, how did you, where, how did that story come about and and how does it relate to your own life and cooking? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, being a millennial and having a lot more people in my cohort becoming chefs and opening their restaurants now and being more authoritative in their jobs has kind of really helped shift the definition of what authenticity means in cuisines. So Mm -hmm. going back to my example of what I ate growing up, yeah, like there's a lot of junk food, there's a lot of like like stuff from the food court where it's a lot of the Canadian Chinese food, like the chicken balls, the fried rice, the, the, the spring rolls and the, the chop suey stuff. And then if you were to ask my parents, if that was real Chinese food, they'd be like, no, I didn't ever, I didn't <laughs> eat any of this stuff in Hong Kong. But for me, it was authentic because it was what I grew up eating. It's my authentic childhood, my life experiences. Who's to say that all those years of eating, I was, not doing it authentically. What does that even mean? So I think that now there's a lot more uh, cooks and chefs in their 30s who grew up eating like I did and are taking inspirations from that childhood and merging it with, you know, the food that their parents ate or something like that and creating this whole new cuisine and saying, you know what? I That's what I ate growing up. That's my authentic <laughs> experience. Who are you right. to say no? And I think that now the definition of authenticity has really changed. It's no longer referencing a fixed point in time in a specific region, but it's very fluid and it really depends on who's cooking it and how that authenticity that they're trying to push uh, references their upbringing and where they ate and and. and where they're going and what they right. cooked with because yeah it's 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 so weird to 
to think that authenticity in cooking like points to like one region, one specific time. Like that's not how food works. It's constantly evolving. Right. No, I did a piece last year on translation and I, I, that was something that people brought up was that when you're not translating the food writing or you're not investing in finding food writers who are on the ground in different countries and different cultures, you are perpetuating like these kinds of historic ideas of a cuisine. You're kind of putting them in a box in a museum and saying they can't change when on the, you know, if you're letting a diaspora define and also not get out of a box of what their ancestral cooking is, then you're, it's it's not doing anyone any service. You know, it's, it's, it's putting a cuisine in a museum and saying certain cuisines need to go in a museum and other cuisines are allowed to change. Yeah. Especially when you're a cook now and you know, you have so many different um, influences. You're, uh, I think a lot more people are traveling now. They're living in different cities. There's the internet. Like the whole idea of globalization, it just really affects so many cuisines. And like, that's just how it's evolving now. And to ignore all of that and try to cook the way that things were at maybe like one point in your life in like an area that you don't even live in anymore. Like that's, is that authentic to you? Like, is it authentic to ignore where you live, where you've worked, your neighborhood, the restaurants that you grew up eating at the places where you shop? Is it worth it to ignore all of that in order to fit some sort of arbitrary standard that like, a Yelp review wants you to. <laughs> right. And I mean, in a related way, you know, you've always on Twitter, <laughs> I've always loved your commentary on, you know, the fact that you grew up thinking of soy milk and cow's milk as separate products and not one being an alternative for the other, because so often there's this really ahistorical narrative around these, these, you know, quote unquote alternatives. And and it's a real, it drives me mad, which, which I think everyone knows. But, um, you know, I wanted to ask have, if you've seen kind of food media at large understand what the nuances are of growing up eating a non-Western cuisine, because I think like we we're just talking about, I think that even when food media wants to escape its Western gaze, it it continues to be a bit, you know, less inclusive than it thinks it's being, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I think it's starting to get a little bit better as more food writers who, who you know, didn't grow up in a Western household are coming up and saying like, oh, no, like this is this isn't weird or, or new. This is like how I've been doing it. And and it's it's starting to get there. And but I think in order for more sweeping or permanent changes, I think it's you have to look at the people at the top, right? The people right. at uh, who are the the editors, the publishers, the people who are making those ultimate editorial decisions and choosing who to hire, what to commission, how things are edited, how things are displayed, how things are shot and styled. Um, and <laughs> I say style because one thing that always irks me is that uh, like more often than not, when I see a bowl of noodles with chopsticks, the chopsticks are always like crossed 
or like they're like stabbing into the bowl of noodles, which is like a big no-no in Chinese culture. It's like, it's like, it, it's, it, it's like rude or like a bad luck thing. So that's always gets me. Or when like, or, or when you see like a pair of like model hands and they're not holding the chopsticks like correctly, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, you're never going to get the noodles holding them like that. So that like, so it, it's always, I think, that I think that really has to change. Right. I, I hope it's getting there. Um, there's more writers and more voices, but at the end of the day, they're the ones who are at like the bottom of like the the corporate hierarchy. Right. They're not the ones that have the voices who are able to make these these calls at the end of the day to like stop perpetuating stereotypes, and misinformation about cuisines. Yeah, no. And that's, I think, why I, I always come back to the idea of translation, too, where it's like, okay, if you're not going to change who's at the top and you are you claim still to want to actually change how things are perceived, then, like, maybe be more open to, like, a global, especially in American food media, because American food media claims to be, like, the arbiter of taste, yes. <laughs> and yet it's so siloed and so provincial. Like, it's so provincial. Like, I don't, like, they would send someone to Toronto rather than interview you about Toronto, you know, oh, instead of, like... That has ask- happened. Yeah. That has happened just this past <laughs> summer. You will see it in the new year. <laughs> if you're wondering why I'm not in there... Just let you know, I was reached out to, I responded, I gave my Uh list of suggestions. I said, get out of the proper Toronto, come to the birds. And they, I never heard from them again. (laughs) Wow. Well, you know, (laughs) I also wanted to ask because we've talked about before, I did a piece of the New Republic about, you know, how food, people who do food as lifestyle should also be concerned about sourcing and sustainability. And then we talked about uh, shrimp for a different piece about how difficult it is to source well. So when you were doing recipe development, you weren't including shrimp because you just didn't want to be, you know, suggesting people buy this cheap shrimp that has such terrible labor conditions and terrible environmental impacts. Um, But I wanted to ask now that you're not doing recipes, but you are still kind of an an arbiter of taste online for food people, you know, how do you bring balance? How how do you bring balance to what you share online? You know, like, because people will see you as an authority. Yeah. It's such a difficult thing to do. I remember once I posted some, something where I used avocados. I think it was just like, I just sliced some avocados on like toast and yeah, yeah i'm a real arbitrator I, like arbiter i, I made avocado toast <laughs> revolutionary and i think like someone in my comments wrote like oh that looks really good but i don't use avocados because it's like x y and, and z and i'm like oh okay yeah so you, you kind of like start going down a spiral because you're like yeah is this this is this, this like is this that like i, I it, it, it's so hard to it's so hard to think about without driving yourself nuts or or bumming you out. And I think, I think you've written about this before. And in terms of like, you know, be as educated and make as informed decisions as you can, you know? So I think being a food writer and knowing more about the environmental and labor consequences of purchasing decisions has really shifted the way how I cook at home Mm -hmm. and where I eat as well. So, you know, our house, 
has, I can't remember last time we bought beef. My God. Um, I really can't remember last time I even cooked with beef. So we stopped, we, we stopped buying beef. Maybe not so much for environmental. It just got really expensive here. Um, like pork <laughs> as well. We, we don't really cook with pork anymore. We, we, we go with chicken, which I mean, I, I'm sure Alicia, you can also argue like that's also not good. <laughs> Same thing with like, we, we go through a lot of eggs as well. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, okay. for the people who can't see this, I just, she's just like, she has like, she's like tilting her head a little bit going like, mm-hmm, uh-huh, uh-huh, mm-hmm. yeah, eggs are great. Yeah. You eat more chicken. Uh-huh. Not judging you at all. But I, 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 I and, but I've eaten more seasonally now you know, like right now, I think the only fruit that I'm eating is like apples <laughs> because that's that's in season yeah. here in Ontario. <laughs> and I'm just trying to be a, as mindful of my eating as possible. But at the same time, I'm not right. positioning myself as perfect. Um, and I right, think right. I don't, I don't, I don't know. What should I do, Alicia? <laughs> what should I do? I think you're doing great. I think you're doing great. I mean, the the funny thing is, and the reason I was making that face is because (laughs) the everyone, like people cut out beef completely. Basically, people are really good at cutting out beef completely from their diets, which is fantastic. But then, yeah, of course, people eat pork, you know, especially when they go out. Like pork is is a big thing for when you go out to eat, I think, more than people are cooking it at home necessarily, other than like different occasions. And then, but chicken is the thing that people just like, once they make a decision to try to eat meat sustainably, they just eat so much chicken. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's why I'm like, I understand it's like part of this, like, it's part of that transition to thinking about these things is to just eat a lot more chicken. And I don't think that that's actually bad. I think it's part of that process of, of understanding the role of meat in your life. I, I posted about my um, Montreal trip on Instagram today mm-hmm. and in my newsletter. And I was like, oh, people are going to tear me to shreds about all this Parmesan cheese. On- <laughs> and like, and like, I, like, so I'm at a level where it's like I can't even have some Parmesan on a kale salad publicly without feeling like people are going to lose their minds at me. But at this, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a balance because right. I think – Living in a city like Toronto that is so multicultural, there, there are cuisines where beef is so integral yeah. to so much of the, the history and the, the cuisines of it. And for me to be like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. that's such a douchebag move, right? Yeah, yeah. And like, who, who am I to say like, no, like all across <laughs> the board? <laughs> no. no, there's and th- there are places where beef is sustainable. You know, um, I know that in Ethiopia they traditionally eat a lot more beef than chicken, but it's beef that has been reared in a in a fashion that is actually good for the the soil and 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 good for the environment, and it doesn't have that impact the way we rear meat in the United States. I did want to ask you, you know, you're always eating such good food out and posting about it. And I'm always so jealous. But like, do you have a methodology for eating out? Uh, so like a lot of it's just Suresh and I, um, my uh, co-collaborator, I guess, on, on our food section at the start, like we just text each other. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, hey, have you tried this? We're like, oh, I passed by this. Have you tried it before? And on weekends, it's, you know, when I go on my exploring trips and I'll just like randomly uh, pick a place 
somewhere in, in the city and I'll just head there and I'll do some preliminary research. I'll just, <laughs> very scientific. I just go on Google Maps <laughs> and type in restaurants and take out <laughs> and then just see what's there. Yeah. But you know, the, the weird, like the thing is a lot of these places that I'm interested in don't have websites or a social media presence. So I just have to go there and see, or, you know, like there, there, there is some use in, in Yelp reviews because it does, I don't, I don't treat it as the Bible, but it kind of gives you an idea of what's, what the selection is, what kind of cuisines that they, that they serve and stuff like that. So I just go there and I, I get asked this question a lot. Like, how do you find these places or how do you determine what, where to go? And I just say, you just go. It, it, <laughs> it's not always, it, it doesn't mean that it's always good. Like right. I don't post everything that I eat. I don't, I'm not wasting time posting something that I don't like. Right. It messes up my the vibe of my grid, Alicia. <laughs> so you just have to go out and eat. If you see a place that piques your interest, yeah. Uh, if it's like this little storefront, you see some activity going on, or you see like a really interesting like bakery shelf, or you're seeing people come out with like like a, a bunch of takeout boxes, like go in and just just yeah. ask because. You, you never know. Just go in and being like, hey, this is my first time here. Is there anything you would recommend? And like, I've mm-hmm. done that so many times before and I'm always pleasantly surprised because a lot of these places don't have menus because they don't need to because they just right. spread by word of mouth. People already know what they need. <laughs> so you just have to almost kind of think of like, think of, think like a reporter and just right. be very curious about your city and just go anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for you, is cooking a political act? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we, we've talked about um, considering the environmental and labor consequences of the ingredients that we work with and sometimes how it sends us into a spiral <laughs> uh, of sorts. And yeah, like I, whenever I talk to people who want to get into food writing, I always say, you know, food, it's never just a recipe. It's never just 800 words about whether or not this restaurant is good. Food is just tied to everything. You can go about it. It can be a labor story. It can be an environmental story. It can be about culture and history because so many cuisines are formed as a result of colonialism and people making these cuisines out of desperation um, because, you know, they couldn't find jobs elsewhere. That's kind of how Chinese American cuisine came out. It was out of desperation because people Mm -hmm. needed jobs or ingredients were sourced because they couldn't find it anywhere else where this ingredient was um, becoming very scarce due to global warming. So they had to find something else. And it's, and it's also, you know, issues of power of being, having being able to have food, unfortunately, is a luxury for a lot of people around the world. And so you're talking about issues of inequality. It, it, it just like I'm going down another spiral right now. It's like <laughs> this is my writing <laughs> process. Like you, you had to have right, you, right, right. You go down this like giant, uh, like like path about like you know. It's never just a recipe. It's never just about the food like there's so many different um things issues that overlap each other when it comes comes to food like you know you look at a tomato and it's like well how is it grown how are the people growing it and harvesting it being treated 
Um, here in Canada, we have a lot of migrant workers who have been here for, you know, decades, but it, it's, but it's very hard for them to get Canadian citizenship or to make enough money or to mm-hmm. have uh, worker rights, um, especially during a pandemic. Like, though, oh my God, the pandemic just added like a whole other layer of mess yeah. to everything in our food systems <laughs> and in, in issues of equality and, and supply chains and how the global economy works. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's a, it's it's a, a lot. lot. <laughs> but yes, to answer your question, it is political. Well, I want to always end on a more positive note. So now I'm asking, how do you define abundance? Uh, oh, I'm going to like bum you out again. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I think my <laughs> definition of abundance has really changed um, in the last two years because of the pandemic. And by that, I mean, whatever I grow to the supermarket, it's always so nice to see endless aisles and in the produce section, just oranges stacked into like a, like a beautiful pyramid even though even if i'm not buying it i'm just like oh it's so it's so mm-hmm. nice to see or if i go to a farmer's market and you see like a stall that has maybe like four or five like cabbages as opposed to like this big mountain i'm kind of like oh that's a little sad looking but because of the pandemic and the shortages that we had in like march 2020 i think it really made me redefine what abundance is and that it's it's nice to have, but I don't. I think that you have to walk that fine line between abundance, and that means being able to have options and not have to um, make concessions, and walking that fine line between that and excess. Yeah, because I think you know. And now um, I don't know when this is coming up, but it's Cyber Monday today, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm getting like bombarded with all, all these deals and it's like, yeah, it's abundance. Like I get like free shipping and I have all these options, but like, do I really need it? And during the pandemic, like I'm, I've, I've, I went to a lot more smaller grocers um, because mm-hmm. the supermarket is a nightmare sometimes. And the selection is smaller, but it's also making me appreciate the different items that I'm getting because I'm not lost in this endless aisle in this endless sea of options. I'm more mindful of what I'm buying because I'm also buying Mm -hmm. less. And a lot of these stores, they have a lot of products by um, local Torontonians that would never be able to scale up to like sell at like a big department store or like a big supermarket. So it really makes me pause and look at these products more. And of course, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they cost more as a treat. I don't consider it as a grocery item, but it, it really makes me rethink my shopping habits and my relationship around the word abundance. And now I'm kind of like, mm-hmm. okay, maybe I don't need abundance. Maybe like enough is, is a good enough baseline for me to be at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that Absolutely. bum you out? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it doesn't bum me out. I think that that's perfect. I think I think that we have to reframe abundance to mean enough and to mean sharing and to mean not just abundance for ourselves personally, but thinking of abundance as everyone has enough. Thank yes. you. I went on five minutes <laughs> about that and just summed up in one sentence. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been super fun. All right. Thank you, Alicia. 
Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy. Thank you.